0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our scripture reading today is taken from the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, Free, but Christ is all and in all. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, it is a really great privilege and joy to be back with you. Uh, I was invited to speak uh, during COVID and then. Of course, the world shut down, so I joined you via video. Uh, we were still figuring out video in those days. I remember my, the audio was sort of crackling, and uh, uh, but it's wonderful to be back in person. It's just uh, a delight to be here. I love this church. I love what God is up to here, and it, it's a joy to be able to open the Word with you today. I was recently in a a chapel service at the seminary where I teach, and we were singing a a modern worship chorus, and one of the lines in the chorus is, I will slay my sin, which is a bit strange, isn't it? I was walking out of the chapel, and one of my colleagues uh, turned to me in the hallway and said, "What what do you make of that line, slaying our sin? I will slay my sin. Where does that come from? wonder if you've ever thought that way in terms of your relation to your sin, your struggle with sin. It's a very violent, jarring image, isn't it? I will kill my sin. I will slay my sin. But we do tend to talk that way, don't we, as a culture, when we think about behaviors we want to get rid of, bad habits we want to let go of. We talk about breaking habits, we talk about eliminating bad habits. I found one website that was, had an article that was titled, Bad Habits You Need to Kill to Be More Successful. The article urges readers to take control of your destiny by deleting the negative habits that have been dragging you down. It goes on. Instead of adding a new diet or workout regime, let's remove the negative habits that have been holding you back. And then it just gives a list. Kill your habit of checking social media during the workday. Kill your habit of comparing yourself with everyone. Kill your habit of complaining. I found myself thinking about that old Bob Newhart skit which some of you may know, where he plays a therapist. And there's a woman who comes in for an appointment that she hopes will help her overcome a, a psychological bad habit. And Newhart does what I hope my therapist never does, which is rather than helping her explore the possible trauma, or pain or anger that's underlying this habit she wants to get rid of, he just says very bluntly, he says, I'm going to say two words to you right now. I want you to listen to them very very carefully. And then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. You ready? Okay. Here are the two words. Stop it. S-T-O-P Second word it stop it <laughs> and she looks at him incredulously if only it were that easy right if only i could just decide to stop it whatever it may be just kill that bad habit delete it from your life gosh don't we wish that that were how life worked if you're like many christians you may be thinking about these matters a lot at the moment because of course we're in the season of lent when a lot of us do try to make a concerted effort to kill a bad habit or two in our lives. And it may be that if you're like me, we're not even into the second half of Lent yet, and you've already failed at your Lenten discipline of killing your sin or your bad habit in some way. What does it mean to slay your sin? When my colleague asked me that in the hallway at the seminary after our chapel, I said, well, you know, actually, I think, I think that line comes from St. Paul. And in fact, it comes from the reading I read just a moment ago in Colossians. Paul says to the believers, put to death whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Part of the life of Christian discipleship, says Paul, is putting sin to death. Putting to death the wrong behaviors that habitually trip us up. Older theology talked about this in terms of the idea of mortification, Mortifying sin, mortify being a verb that's related to the noun mortality, the condition of being subject to death. We are to make our sins die, to mortally wound our sins, to, to mortify, to put them to death. One contemporary preacher translates this older theology as be killing your sin. The question is, how is that not Paul just doing what Bob Newhart did in that skit, just telling us, stop it, kill it, put it to death? How does that help me? If I could stop it, I would. If I could kill it, I would have already done that. Well, here's where I think it's absolutely critical that we notice the context of Paul's command. He says, right before he says, put to death whatever in you is earthly, right before that, he says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, right before he says, put to death your sin, he says, you are already dead, You have already died. It's a done deal. It's a fact about you. What does he mean by that? Well, a little bit later in the passage, he says, You have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, most interpreters of the Bible think that that's probably a set of words, uh, phrases, that would have been used at the time of baptism. We don't exactly know how baptism was practiced in Paul's churches, but we do know how it was practiced in Rome a few years after Paul. And what would take place is that if you were a new believer in Jesus, you would spend all of Lent, maybe longer, sort of memorizing scripture, having demons cast out of you, learning the creed, learning about this new faith that you were drawn into, learning about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And you would have gone through this rigorous catechesis, formation, discipleship. And you would have gotten then to the service that takes place in the dead of night, Easter Sunday, leading up to the, the dawning of Easter Sunday. And you would have gathered in a huddle with the other folks who were, who were going to be baptized, And you would have looked really different. Some of you would have had on very nice, fancy clothes because you were wealthy. Others would have been dressed very shabbily because they were poor. Your skin color would be different. Your, Your accents would be different. You were all there huddled around the pool of water by candlelight. And everyone would have taken off their clothes. And one by one, they would have gone down into the pool of water And the priests would have buried them, plunged them under the water to show that their old life, whatever it may have been, whether they were barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, whatever, that's all done. You've died to that old self. And as they came up out of the baptismal water, they would have been given a white garment that would have been identically the same as every other person had so that you couldn't tell anymore the difference between rich and poor slave and free, Jew and Greek. Everybody looks the same because everyone is clothed with Jesus Christ. He is your new identity. Your your old self has died in that water. You've been buried and you've now been born again to a whole new way of being human. And then you would have gone into the sanctuary and you would have joined all the rest of the Christians celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was how the early church practiced baptism. I've never seen that done in the modern world, but I would love it if we could bring that back. I think it would be so dramatic. Paul is saying in Colossians, that moment in your life, when you got plunged under that water, that was the end of your old identity, and you are now dead. You're made new and born again into eternal life. Reminds me of how the theologian Karl Barth used to answer the question of when he got saved. North American evangelicals would sometimes ask him, when did you get saved, Karl Barth? And he would say, I got saved in the year A.D. 33, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Because that was the moment when I was buried. I died with him there on the cross. And I now share in his risen life. So yes, Paul says, be killing your sin. Put your sin to death. Put to death those old, bad, destructive habits that keep cropping up again and again in your life. But don't do that in order to try to achieve a new self. Don't do those things in order to try to purchase a new birth. Do it because that's who you really are already. Your death has already taken place, and it was a matter of sheer grace. You and I contributed nothing to it. And so our struggle against sin now is not an effort to achieve victory. It's rather the outflow of the new life that we've been given purely by grace. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul goes on to say, your life, you've died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God could be that there's a number of different things Paul means by that, but I wonder if one of the things he means is this. It is not always easy, if we're honest with ourselves, to see that we've died. It's not always easy to believe that our old life is actually done and we have a new life in Christ. Because when I look at my life and you look at your life, we still see a lot of misbehavior, a lot of struggle, a lot of doubt. We may not see as much, quote-unquote, progress in our lives as we would like to see. But what Paul says is that that new life, we may not see it as much as we like, but it's there. It's the truest thing about us. Our lives are hidden with Christ. In God. The Anglican poet George Herbert, who I suspect is a favorite to a lot of us in this room, uh, he wrote a poem about this passage in Colossians and uh, he titled it Colossians 3 verse 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3. And uh, I think this is super charming. He actually, he, he stenciled it on the wall Near the chair that his wife would sit in in their little parish church, so that as she was there during the service, she could look at the wall and see this poem uh, from Colossians 3. And right at the heart of this is Herbert's paraphrase of that verse. He says, My life is hid in him that is my treasure. My life is hid in Christ, who is my treasure. If you know Herbert's poetry, he often liked to write poems in such a way that when they were printed on the page, they formed a shape. He has a poem called Easter Wings, and it actually looks like wings on the page. And in this particular poem, uh, those words, the Colossians 3, it's like a diagonal line cutting right through the poem. And it's mimicking, I think, the journey of the sun across the sky, the diagonal journey of the sun. as it it rises and sets. Here's the poem. My words and thoughts do both express this notion, that life hath with the sun a double motion. The first is straight and our diurnal friend. The other hid and doth obliquely bend. One life is wrapped in flesh and tends to earth. The other winds towards him, whose happy birth taught me to live here so that still one eye should aim and shoot at that which is on high, quitting with daily labor all my pleasure to gain at harvest an eternal treasure." If you look at those words, the words that are capitalized, slicing through the poem, it says, my life is hid in him that is my treasure. This poem uses the image of the sun to say that, on the one hand, there's the journey of the sun that we can easily spot, right? We see it come up in the east in the morning, we see it set in the west, but there's another journey of the sun in fact, that's harder to see. This is the annual journey of the sun. And if you spend a lot of time outdoors, maybe you see it. I feel like I don't ever see it. But it's, it's the sun sort of moving annually from west to east in what Herbert calls a more oblique trajectory. It's largely hidden from view, unless you're actually someone who has a hobby of watching where it appears in the sky over the course of a year. That's like the Christian life, Herbert says. Like Jesus, the son of righteousness, we we see a certain arc, we see a trajectory leading toward death. But we see another trajectory as well. Jesus is not only the one who has gone down into death and we've joined him there in the waters of baptism. Jesus is the risen Lord. And he has taken our frail lives in hand and he has raised us up with him so that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. And that is who we fundamentally are. We are those who've been given a new life in Jesus. Friends, that may be hard to see at times. It's hard for me to see in my life. But that's the real truth about who we are it really is we have you and I indeed we have already died and our lives our indestructible everlasting risen lives are already hidden with Jesus Christ in God to him be the glory now and forever amen